everything wrong with Australia's top 4x4 dual cab utes as off-roaders and workhorses. That's next. If you are thinking about buying a dual cab ute, listen up. I'm John Cadogan from autoexpert.com.au and I get new cars, and of course utes, cheap for buyers here in Shaya. You can inquire at the website about that. Seven of the top ten utes, okay, the notionally Japanese ones, plus of course the recently deceased Holden Colorado, are in fact made in Thailand. They've never actually seen a sunrise in the land of the rising sun. The only Japanese ute that's still kind of fully Bushido on all of this is the Land Cruiser. It's the only one in the top ten that is still authentically made in Japan. Volkswagen Amarok, that legendary German build quality, made in Argentina. That automotive manufacturing powerhouse. Yes. And the LDV T60, which is number 10 in ute sales, Australia, made in China. So, let us now count them down from 1 to 10 in sales and identify everything that is, let's be kind, less than perfect. Toyota Hilux is, of course, the market's top seller. And the reality here is Toyota is the king of frigging mediocrity. And while Hilux doesn't really do anything wrong, it just fails to shine in any particular area. Features, specifications, performance capabilities and value. Hilux is kind of a midfielder. No Apple CarPlay or Android Auto in the Hilux. And this is emblematic of Toyota's attitude to the product and to potential owners such as you. Which would be, let us do the absolute minimum to stay in front on sales. Definitely, let us not excel anywhere. Whatever you do, don't excel. Apple CarPlay, of course, was first released in 2014. Just saying. It's one of the easiest technologies for a car maker to implement, and there is no excuse, especially as every tradie on the planet lives or dies by his or her cell phone. Let's not forget that. There's no standard transmission cooler either in Hilux, just saying. It's like two tubes running forward to the radiator, which is hardly, in automotive engineering terms, the equivalent of a translunar injection burn. Hilux is also reasonably expensive, like not as ridiculous as a Ford Ranger, but definitely not a bargain. I guess at least the value proposition with Hilux is pumped up somewhat by virtue of Toyota's really strong resale value in 4x4s. And one plus is that the staggering pandemic of previous Hilux DPF failures appears to have been put to bed finally. So that's nice. And Toyota does a decent job with customers, generally. The Ford Ranger currently sits at number two in sales, although this is a photo finish with Hilux again this year. It certainly was in 2019 as well, with Ranger in front by a neck. 
The premium powertrain with Ranger is a two-litre twin-turbo diesel four-cylinder with a 10-speed automatic. Yes! But unfortunately, that 10-speed hunts around incessantly if you tow something heavy, and the 2.0 twin-turbo is wound up rather tight. I think you'd agree. Yet, it doesn't really perform any better than the 3.2 five-cylinder sort of long-term mainstay engine in Ranger, unless, of course, you rev the 2.0 twin-turbos tits off. I do like titties. And although the 3.2 is a great proven engine that's been around for ages, the six-speed automatic that it comes with is renowned for failure. Generally, this stems from a material defect slash inadequacy in the valve body, and it does tend to be an expensive repair if not covered by warranty or good faith Australian consumer law compliance type they foot the bill. Over temperature failures, catastrophic ones with this transmission are common and there's no standard transmission oil cooler either for the five cylinder or the two litre twin turbo as I understand it. I would say however that the latter models like the currently available Ranger brand new I think they're a bit better reliability wise than the earlier ones so Maybe they're learning incrementally from mistakes made earlier in production runs. Ranger and BT-50 are made in the same factory in Thailand, okay? They are substantially the same. Some would say twins under the skin. I would be one of those someones. All I can say here is, if Mazda can make a profit on a BT-50 GT by selling it for about 50 grand, then Ford is making an absolute shitload squared on a Ranger Wild Track costing 12 or $13,000 more. It's frankly amazing. With Ranger, the price is simply wrong. And yet, buyers seem quite undeterred. Mainly because buying a wild track gets you into a particular kind of club. Go figure. Mitsubishi Triton, number three in sales currently. There's a great deal to like about Triton. Awesome value, just awesome. Super advanced transfer case, at least for a ute. They call it Super Select 2, okay? And what it does is it allows you to drive on a high traction surface with the center diff unlocked in four-wheel drive high range. So what this means is, if you just look at the specs, you will see a 3.2 Ranger Wild Track with a peak torque figure of 470 newton meters versus a Triton on 430. That's 8.5% less in the mid-rev range for the Triton, okay? And torque is proportional to power, RPM for RPM. That's just hashtag physics. And you might therefore say to yourself, maybe it is worth it to pay $12,000 or $13,000 more for the Ranger because 8.5% more grunt is rather a lot. I'd suggest the Ranger is also 14% heavier, curb weight versus curb weight, so kilo for kilo, the Triton actually packs more punch in the real world, even though the engine is less powerful in the mid-range and at the top. And it gets more drive to the ground, okay, when traction is marginal, by virtue of splitting it four ways, thanks to Super Select 2, which most other utes cannot do unless you are in mud or sand or soft, slippery mediums 
of that nature. Triton GSR or GLS Premium is not available as a manual, sadly, but the automatic driveline is basically bulletproof and better for a lot of off-roading in particular. It's also really smooth, it has excellent manual override via the paddles, you certainly get to tell it what to do if you want to do that, and it has brilliant temperature control for things like slogging through soft sand or heavy towing because it's one of the few 4x4 utes with a dedicated standard transmission oil cooler X-Factory. The other one would be Navara. Triton's cabin is super spacious among utes and very comfortable too in the context of competitors. Well thought out, great seats for the long haul, things like that that really matter if you are sitting in that truck for a long time every day. So, if all of this sounds rather like an advertisement for Triton, I have to burst that bubble. This is not sponsored by them, it's just what I think. And let me shatter this advertising illusion right now, shall I? Triton is, of course, my go-to recommendation for dual-cab 4x4s, there's no doubt on that, but here's why you might not want to buy one anyway. The rear edge of the cabin in a Triton is quite close to the centre line of the rear axle, and this matters, and I'm talking compared with most other dual cabs, okay? This is, in fact, a vital consideration if you want to carry a lot of load in the tray because the geometry here means that that load, much of it anyway, is going to hang out the back behind the rear axle, which is a rather big cantilever when you think about it. So... If you are some sort of hardcore tradie with a heavily loaded ute, you know, big service body, up near the GVM of that vehicle every day, or you are an outback touring, beard-stroking, grey nomad downloading, I don't know, five-star camper tray porn every night, yes, then Triton might not offer the heavyweight accommodations either of you dudes need for all of that gear. If you're going to be ditching the tub and fitting a tray to your dual cab Triton, two recommendations, okay? Number one, consider fitting a slightly shorter tray to minimise the cantilever effect, and that would be in the range of sort of 1.5 to 1.6 metres worth of tray length, longitudinally. That'll reduce the bending moment on the chassis behind the axle, and it'll also reduce the effect of that load pushing you sideways when you go around a corner, Use as much aluminium in the design of your tray as possible too, because in general, aluminium designs of equal strength are about half the weight of steel. Number two, try to organise that weight in the tray so that the heaviest items are located as far forward as possible. Obviously, this is easier in a tray than it is with the standard tub, thanks to the high-tech miracle of drop-side access etc. Hatches, things of that nature. You can, of course, ameliorate this issue entirely by just putting all of the heavy stuff in a trailer for both work and play. Colorado, number four in sales so far, thanks to a big fire sale, obviously, owing to the lingering death of Holden finally reaching a drawn-out but inevitable conclusion. Frankly, you know, the biggest problem with owning a Colorado is going to be resale value and ongoing service and support into the future. 
Currently, Holden is at war with its soon-to-be former dealers. They're essentially in a competition to see who can be Australia's biggest asshole. It's a close-run thing, too, as I understand it. This is roughly as entertaining as reality TV currently. If you're just a spectator, not so hot if you're an owner. Neither camp, GM nor its dealers, is focused on supporting customers like you because they're too busy fighting each other. They're too busy out assholing one another. It just doesn't bode well for the future, frankly. Colorado is also uncomfortable and pretty basic inside, like they sourced every fitting in the cab at Cheap Plastic R Us. It's okay if you like that, I suppose, but not nearly as comfortable as a Triton, a Ranger, or an Amarok. And this really matters if you're delivering stuff every day, or you're driving from job site to job site six days a week, or you are driving right across the nation. Colorado doesn't even offer a rear diff lock for the rough stuff. You can certainly add one in the aftermarket industry, and that's pretty easy. Like an ARB air locker is going to set you back just under two grand installed. But why the hell should you have to put your hand in your pocket just to reach a point of equivalence with Hilux, Triton, Ranger, BT50, etc.? Isuzu D-Max is currently number five, and I'm not buying that BS about legendary truck anything. That Ford JJ whatever engine is an outdated boat anchor. Use by date, expired, it's reliable certainly, but outclassed by competitors. They really just needed to keep evolving it, and they have not. And interestingly, this ute shares the same transmission with Hilux. And this highlights, to me at least, how important integration is as a function of research and development when you're making a car. It also highlights how poorly Isuzu has managed this integration with its antiquated and poorly refined powertrain inside the D-Max. The transmission is not rough, okay? The software controlling it is what achieves that. That engine and transmission are the world's unhappiest married couple, okay? They really don't talk to each other anymore. And the cabin is unbelievably rough and basic. Buying a D-Max is like getting your hands on a brand new 15-year-old Colorado. That's the reality. No standard rear diff locker for the D-Max either, just like Colorado. And it makes such a difference in rough terrain. It really does. Once you get a wheel airborne, it's all over if you don't have a rear diff locker. It has a huge impact on tractive effort if off-roading is important to you. 2,000 bucks extra to solve that one off the bat. Nissan Navara, number six in sales currently, and I would like to be as kind as I can be to Navara. This is going to mean digging deep. If you want a ute to drive around in unladen or very lightly loaded, and you never want to carry a heavy load approaching the GVM or tow a heavy trailer, and you never see yourself slogging through traction, sapping, soft sand, and things of that nature, okay. Navara should be fine for you. You would probably be objectively better off in a seven-seat soft-style SUV, but okay, great, knock yourself out. If you want a ute and you do not intend to make it work, 
Navara. That bi-turbo engine in Navara intrinsically lacks low-down power delivery. So Navara's going to bog itself down in soft sand and things like that in conditions where most other utes are going to power on through successfully. It's that simple. You are going to need to rev Navara's tits off, comparatively, to make reasonable power in demanding off-road conditions that require high levels of tractive effort. The most obvious one of those is soft sand. Navara's coil-sprung rear end is very comfortable, unladen. There is no doubt about this. But that also makes it comparatively crap at carrying heavy loads and also for heavy towing. And if you want to fix that, you're going to need to investigate fitting stiffer variable rate coils in the aftermarket industry and or airbags to the rear. And you will definitely sacrifice ride quality if you do this. And it's still not going to carry the load as well as a leaf sprung ute. So Doing this, you know, buying a Navara and modifying it up to get better at the things it's bad at is kind of a hiding to nowhere, in my view. These, let's call them features, but they're really deficiencies for a great many intending users, exist in Navara today because Nissan entered into that contract to rebadge the Navara as the Mercedes-Benz X-Class. They therefore were required to meet three-pronged suppositories, on-road ride quality and straight-line performance benchmarks, and this is how they achieved it. The twin-turbo engine and the coil-sprung, nice, soft, compliant rear end. This, of course, comes at a cost because this is the nature of engineering trade-off in terms of off-road and tradie-type performance, okay? That took one step back when all of those refinement things stepped forward. And let's not forget that this trade-off was ultimately for nothing. X-Class was, of course, so spectacularly successful that senior executive three-prong suppository management have yanked it from the lineup prematurely because nobody was buying one. So that's nice. At least Navara has a rear diff locker and a standard transmission cooler. Pity about the turning circle, of course, which is roughly the same as that of the Ruby Princess. Next, Land Cruiser Dual Cab GXL, currently number seven. Not really apples for apples in the context of these other utes. It's a grunt machine. Almost, thanks to having a 4.5-litre turbo diesel V8, but it's really not the same as the twin-turbo 4.5 diesel V8 in the 200 series, okay? In fact, it's only delivering 430 peak newton metres, which is roughly the same as a friggin' Triton in a package that weighs several hundred kilos more, and I can't be specific on that because you need to add a tray, and that's something of a variable and it's hardly cheap, this vehicle, at around $83,000 drive away for a GXL dual cab. <laughs> yes. This vehicle has a substantial fan base and doubtless the resale value is going to be sky high. But I'm really not seeing it as a go-to proposition for most people on 
objective criteria. Andrew St. Pierre White, good guy actually, who runs the 4x Overland YouTube channel, I would check him out if I were you and if this is the path you intend to go down. He's very hands-on with commercial grade cruisers and not afraid to call a spade a friggin' shovel when it deserves to be labelled as such. The pro tip here, you're going to be paying luxury car tax on a vehicle such as this. That's how in touch the federal government is on automotive issues. If you cannot see why this is both nauseating and kind of hilarious in the same breath, get yourself down to a Toyota dealer and sit inside one of these fine vehicles and bask in all of that luxury. <laughs> The BT-50 is kind of like a really great value Ford Ranger, but with absolutely no sex appeal. Currently running at number eight in sales, despite being essentially just a really cheap Ranger. You'll get a current BT-50 GT for about 50 grand drive away versus a Ranger Wildtrak for about 65. So not even a $15,000 discount and the whole twin under the skin thing can overcome the evisceration of vestigial sex appeal with the BT. They roll down the same production line together and they exit from the anus of the same factory in Thailand, which poops them out somewhat indiscriminately. There's no twin turbo 2 litre in the BT50 lineup, and the same reservation about valve body failures in that six speed transmission as in Ranger pertains to the BT. And I guess all of your blue singlet mates will mock you. Plus, there's a new BT in the wings, which is much better looking, but based on the yawn, all new Isuzu D Max. <laughs> Volkswagen Amarok number nine, really interesting ute. Leaving Volkswagen's default corporate depravity, criminal, con criminal, criminal convictions and general moral ambiguity to one side for a change, hashtag Dieselgate. This vehicle offers incredible engine performance in the V6 models. It is truly incredible got to drive one. It's amazing. Peak power of 190 kilowatts at 4,500 revs and 580 newton meters, ladies and gentlemen, from 1,400 all the way up to 3,000 RPM. Amarok's a pretty heavy vehicle, but it hauls. It really hauls. Big brakes too, and four-wheel discs, which is something of a rarity among four-wheel drive utes. I think it's only the Ranger Raptor and the high-priced, luxurious Land Cruiser Ute that offers four-wheel discs. Everything else still stuck on rear drums. Well done, manufacturers. Because rear drums, you know, they can be quite okay if they're well sorted, and they will give you a really strong parking brake out there at the side of, I don't know, the Matterhorn or something. But hey... It's almost 2021, and rear drums are invariably just a cost-saving addition for manufacturers. It's far easier, in my view, to apologise for rear drums on some base model shitter than a truly high-spec 
dual cab 4x4. When you're paying the big bucks, rear drums is like slap in the face number one. So well done there, Volkswagen, for departing from the herd on this. Despite these considerable positives, and engine performance is so friggin' important, let's not forget, but despite this, there is so much WTF factor with a bullet when it comes to buying and living with an Amarok. Let us start with an easy one on this. Amarok has bolts, which are technically set screws, I suppose, holding the friggin' wheels on. And just think about the implications of that as an owner. Just one second. Let us say, hypothetically, that you are crossing the mighty Simpson Desert or something in your incredibly powerful Amarok. Yes, you've dreamed of this for years and now you're friggin' doing it. Yes. But as is often the case, you get a flat tyre. This happens all the time in the scrub. So you change to the spare at the side of the track and you discover that it is bloody hard to line those wheels up if they're based on bolts and not studs. Every other ute has studs on the axle flanges, which make it dead easy to locate the wheels in the right orientation with the 40 degree Australian sun belting down on the back of your head. Degree of difficulty with bolts slash set screws, 13 out of a possible 10. <sighs> that legendary Charman engineering. I can see absolutely no advantage whatsoever to using bolts or set screws, whatever. Let me know if you can, but I'm not seeing it. Next, there is no low range in an Amarok. I mean, sure, there's an off-road mode, but if you want speed reduction to go with your torque amplification, an off-road, you really do want that. And let's not forget, that's the purpose of a low range gear set, speed reduction, torque multiplication, that's what it does. Without that reduction gearing in an Amarok, that job of doing that falls exclusively to the torque converter. And essentially, what we're talking about here is generating a shitload of fluid friction, which generates a commensurately amazing tsunami of heat. Amarok has no standard transmission cooler and nothing kills transmissions more quickly than excess heat. So, oops-a-daisy. This means that while the Amarok powertrain might seem perfect on paper for towing or slogging through soft sand and things of that nature, you are really entering ticking time bomb mode with transmission temperature when you do this kind of thing in an Amarok in the middle of summer in central Schittsville. Amarok might be quite okay in Wolfsburg, sort of mid-January, but here in Australia in summer... Not so much. You'll be instantly putting your hand in your pocket for an aftermarket transmission cooler if you buy an Amarok and you intend to make it work in this way. Best make it a good cooler, I'd suggest. Also, no low-range gearing means it does tend to run away quite a bit on steep off-road descents. And then there's the crashworthiness, okay? Five stars, yes, in 2011. Mm, not so hot. That's really not the same thing as five stars in 2018, 2019, or 2020. It's really not. Amarok would struggle to warrant two or three stars if tested against current ANCAP safety protocols. So if safety is important to you, best look beyond that Amarok 2011 five-star label. <laughs> Thank you.
DV T60 rounding out the top 10, kind of a surprise and somewhat interesting. The only Chinese ute in the top 10, and it looks quite okay on paper. The jury's still out, of course, on long-term reliability, customer support, the company's commitment to doing business here in Shitsville, and of course, resale value down the track. These are all pretty important considerations and all in the domain of, as Donald Rumsfeld would say, known unknowns. Like, this is a risk that you know about, but which you cannot quantify yet, and therefore you can choose to roll the dice, but you'll be doing it in a at least somewhat informed way. The Wurksberger of LDV T60s, which is called the Trail Rider, is about $20,000 cheaper than a Ranger Wild Track, but it's only about $8,000 cheaper than a fully loaded Triton GSR. And I'm not suggesting the LDV is equivalent to either of these long-term market mainstays. T60 Trail Rider is also heavier than a Triton GSR and down on peak power and torque. And given the likely resale proposition with the LDV, I'd be finding the extra eight grand up front and buying the Triton because it's going to work out better for you financially on the balance of probabilities. I suspect a Triton will cost you less in the long term over, say, five, six or seven years worth of ownership. A T60 is really an alternative, in my mind at least, to purchasing a late model used ute spec for spec. <music> Okay, so that's how I see the major players in the 4x4 dual cab ute market playing out in 2020. Obviously, BT50 and DMAX are about to jump into bed together and the goalposts are going to move laterally there with those two vehicles. I've covered that in two earlier reports, links in the blog post below. Ford and Volkswagen are likewise to hook up on next generation Amarok. So the next notionally German ute is going to be a Ranger under the skin. And personally, I'm rather looking forward to a collaboration between Ford and Volkswagen. <laughs> Mainly because I've always been unable to look away when the subject in question is macabre and grotesque. And there's the much speculated about Hyundai Santa Cruz. And I must say, it is taking HMG rather a long time to angle grinder the roof off the back third of a Santa Fe, because that's what this is, basically. Santa Cruz is therefore not going to be a ute as we know it. Not a Hilux competitor, certainly. It's going to be a unitary construction vehicle, and I suspect quite the light-duty conveyance in the context of current utes. That means it's going to deliver probably good handling around town and on the highway, but certainly not one to measure up against the current all-terrain, wilderness, bashing-into-submission, 4x4, heavy-hauling market leaders or tradie champions, okay? Personally, I am wondering if families around this fine nation are going to say, well, you know what, that's actually the ute we've been crying out for, the one we need as opposed to the one we want, or whether those same families are going to decide the bragging rights associated with the current market-leading dual-cab utes, you know, things like the big tow capacity, the one-ton payloads, the severe all-terrain capability i.e. the capabilities few owners actually ever exploit, at least in the expensive seats. I'm wondering if these status-type features and considerations are going to eclipse 
objective needs for families and suits in utes. If Hyundai gets Santa Cruz right, meaning if the vehicle is not a pig and they establish a viable niche of buyers unafraid to admit that they want a smaller, softer and somewhat more cuddly ute, if that niche is roughly as big as that of, say, I don't know, Navara, which would be about 10,000 sales in the first full year, bearing in mind that Hilux and Rangers sell just shy of 40,000 units annually in 4x4s. If Hyundai can do that, just 10,000 sales, okay, it's going to be a photo finish for second place in overall vehicle sales in the Australian market. And they'll be up against Mazda for slot number two. So that's going to be kind of interesting to watch because Mazda has always dropped the ball on BT50 and failed to make it live up to its potential on sales. Santa Cruz will be either a runaway success or a massive own goal. I'm not really seeing too much middle ground on that, and it'll be the public, that meaning you, casting the deciding vote on that. Let me know what you think of the Santa Cruz in the comments below. So, I think you'd agree that while there's clearly no perfect ute, there's no perfect ute like there's no perfect anything else. There's no perfect wife, there's no perfect camera, there's no perfect friggin' anything. You just have to embrace the positives and learn to live with the negatives, right, if you want to get by. 2021 is going to be a very interesting year for youths, indeed. And I sincerely hope that this somewhat long endurance event video has clued you up and helped you make an informed decision about your next new ute. Thank you very much for watching.